then all of a sudden somebody comes up with an idea that you have this very light stick that is a strung with a string and you might have a quiver with up to 60 arrows that will touch the animal or that will touch your target up to 40 yards away. That's, that, that's beyond, beyond understanding of a modern human how important that invention was. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, and I am really excited to share this fascinating interview I recorded last spring with Victor Keen, whose real name is actually Vyacheslav Kuhn. He hails from what was then communist Czechoslovakia. He has a really, really interesting story to share about his childhood. Uh, some fascinating, fascinating insight here about bow making and how it forever changed the trajectory of humankind. You're going to hear about his remarkable work and process as a traditional bow maker. And before we get started, you might even want to just check out his website. That's vikis.org, V-I-K-I-E-S, to understand the level of craftsmanship we're talking about here. If you're already an archery enthusiast or a bow hunter, I promise you're going to be coveting one of his bows once you look at his work and you also listen to this conversation. And if not, this conversation may just be some interesting insight into our human history or may make you want to take up archery. I know I always loved archery as a kid. It was one of my favorite activities at camp. So that's it for me. I'm going to leave you to this conversation with Victor. You can let me know your thoughts over on my Instagram page. If you're not following me already, that's at Jennifer Grayson one. And I will see you next Thursday with a new episode. Victor Keen has been fascinated with bows and arrows ever since he was a child and has been making and shooting primitive bows for over 20 years. Early human technology and engineering has inspired him to use only natural materials in his work, and he harvests and processes most of the materials he uses. Since 2016, he is a Level 2 certified USA archery instructor. Victor, welcome to the show. Hi there. Let's just get into your story because I've always been so fascinated and admittedly a little jealous of people who have found such a specific and clear calling at such a young age. So how did you discover bow making? And, and um, this is a two-part question. How did you realize when you discovered it that like, okay, this is it for me? Well, I never, <clears throat> okay, the, the part of this is it for me never hit home very, you, you, you know, like in a one punch, one hit. It, it kind of like slowly sort of snowballed and kind of, kind of slow, it slowly dawned on me. But the part when I kind of began with it and started with it, so when I was a little kid, that me and my best friend and my cousin, we were always kind of, you know, running around and just, just like countless of little boys playing around with, you know, sticks and knives and doing all sorts of stuff that boys do. And, you know, one day we were like, you know, like let's make these all these bows and arrows because we've seen... We keep seeing it in books and keep reading about it. And so we kind of started on that trial and error 
making bows and arrows. And it's the thing that I remember making. The, the first one is just that very easy bent stick, and then it breaks the next day or after two shots, and then you make better one. And once, after, after a lot of effort, you make one bow that you kind of like, wow, that's, that's a decent bow. And you're looking at it after a little bit, and it barely shoots an arrow, and you're like, you know, I think I can do better than that. I, I, I it, it must be better. And I feel I'm on that journey ever since then, because with every bow I make, I kind of already start thinking about tweaks to the design I could make or little kind of nuances I could fine-tune into perfection, given certain species of wood I work with or specific length or width or design of bow I'm trying to implement at that moment. So you said you were running around the woods like most boys do. Where where are you from? Tell me more I'm about your childhood. Czech, yeah, I'm from Czech Republic, and uh, Czech Republic divides into kind of into two parts, and one is Bohemia and one is Moravia. So I am from Moravia. And how old and are I you? Grew, I, I just turned uh, 40 last summer, so I'm 40. Okay, so when you were a child, this was, tell us about you, this was Czechoslovakia. Oh, yeah, it was mainly in the 90s, you know, early 90s and stuff. And it was the time when the communist system fell down and it was kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of wild times in the 90s, you know. I wouldn't say anarchy, but it, it, it was different times in the 90s because the, everything was changing, the system came down, people didn't know what's going to be next, and it was the euphoria in the air and, the, you know, it, it was times hard to describe it, it it was incredible so there was not really many rules and stuff so so uh, my growing up what i remember from the early 90s is that euphoria that communist system fell down everybody was excited and a little bit uncertain what might be next but that was kind of part of the deal and so it, it was little little different times and and what and did your of, parents do? Where did your family fit into this whole story of the of Czechoslovakia basically, you know, coming down as you knew it as as a baby? Oh, you know, like uh, like uh, from the communist time, I remember uh, any of my family relatives. We were not really they they used to call it politically comfortable, meaning that. Uh, they were not really agreeing or participating much with the Communist Party or with the Socialist Party. So they were slightly being slightly oppressed and didn't have much of a life choices. So with the communist system coming down, everybody was very excited. And so what did they do for work? My mom worked in a hospital as a secretary. And my father was a uh, first, he was a truck driver. And then he got some kind of office job, which I don't remember what. And by the time, by the fall of communism, my parents were uh, getting divorced. So uh, most of my upbringing, it's mostly tied to my mom. Yeah. And so I can imagine just I'm saying this because I also was raised by a single mom. You must have had a lot of freedom. I know I did. Because yes, there aren't as many people watching you. <laughs> I know, and you know, it was re like really. I grew up in the small town. My cousin lived in the in the village next to the town, like fifteen minute walk. And I would, you know, there was no commute, no cars. I lived short distance from school, so I would just like come home and spend the whole afternoon and the weekends, and you know, just kind of 
poking around, roaming around, and yeah, it, it, it was cool for what it was, it, it was, and who I am or who I was. It's it was perfect, I think. Yeah, and so you're you know you're in the woods, you're exploring, you're making bows and arrows. And did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up? What did you think your life was going to be like? Oh, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, this is kind of bigger question than the bow and arrow thing. But I think everybody has ideas what what they're going to be, right? And the smaller you are, the bigger the bigger variety of things are possible. And then the more of so-called grown-up you are, the narrower your possibilities are given your real circumstances and the stuff that you created on yourself and the people you with and whatnot. So, so yeah, I, had to, I, I don't really remember exactly most of my ideas what I wanted to be, but I'm, I know I'm sure I wanted to be so many things, you know. So, <laughs> and, and Bowmaker was never really one of them. So it wasn't, it was okay. Being, it it wasn't because the way I was brought up, uh, that there was no really in in the mindset of everyday people. I don't remember anybody having the ideas of uh, making livelihood and making what you really love to do, or doing what you love to do. Uh, they, they never had them mixed together. It was two separate things. Yeah. So for living, you do something that. Maybe you choose, but it's going to kind of suck and it's going to be hard and it's going to be your Monday to Friday deal. And if you want to have fun with your bows and arrows or anything that might be fun and exciting, you have weekends. Maybe right. Afternoons. right. Yeah, so, it's a hobby. So, mm-hmm. okay. So to, it's a hobby. Can you trace the path for us then? How did you come to the U.S.? And how did you, because even now when you tell people I make bows and arrows for a living, I'm sure even now in America, people must be surprised that that's a possibility so can you trace the path for me how did you come to america and how did this become your livelihood well to america i came in 1997 and i just came as a as a tourist i just came you know like to explore a little bit and look around and i definitely i fell in love with u.s and i fell mainly i fell in love with the with the west with the with the iconic American West, ever since I've seen the the plains, the deserts, the mountains, the woods, I I felt like I came home. What do you think it, it is? Yeah. Can you? Is there one I specific do, do, thing you can point to? I don't know what it is, but mainly, mainly one thing is that where I grew up, it's a it's ve- it's it's an ancient country, very lush, very beautiful. And I live like it's such an old country that uh, just few miles from where I live are caves where the Neanderthals lived. Another few miles south, there is one of the oldest, it, 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 one of the oldest permanent camps of mammoth hunters, dating to 35 years, 35,000 years old. Then everywhere around me, we have all Celtic villages, Slavic villages, archaeological sites. So the land, it's so old, and you can see the, the, the hand of human, the human imprint everywhere. The, it's very beautiful, you know, like everything is sort of divided into this forests and woods and fields. And everything's very picturesque, but you feel the presence of human everywhere. And because it's kind of wooded, kind of forested, then then 
then it's more of a forest environment where you don't have as much of a, a far and wide view. So I remember once even driving through the plains and seeing the desert and seeing the, the mountains and the vast open expanses where you can, as far as you can see, if you, you know, I know spots that if I go camping and I look wherever I can see, there's not at night, there's not a single light, there's no single sign of human. And that to me was absolutely striking. Right. And then, and you feel the ancientness of it too, but in an entirely different way, I can imagine. In 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 entirely different way. So I would say the it, it's almost like a vibe of the land. It's almost like something that is hard to describe. And if you are anywhere in Europe and it's beautiful, it's picturesque, but everywhere you can see kind of traits of human. And there's few spots that I've been to some of them in Alaska, that I was backpacking in mountains and hills that it, it was the feel, it was, the, it was almost like buzzing with this untouched energy. So I don't care if the environment is Arctic or tropical or desert or alpine or forest or deciduous trees or, or the prairie. As long as there is minimal touch of human, there's something peaceful in it, at least for me personally. Yeah. And I know from our earlier conversation, Victor, that you, human history and your fascination with human history plays uh -huh. so much in, into what you do. So I was hoping we could talk about that a bit because I'm going to quote you. You said, people don't realize that the bow was one of the first huge engineering events in human history and it happened mm -hmm. about 20,000 years ago. It changed societies. So can you talk about maybe a bit just the history of bow making and hunting and, and the role that this played in our human history? Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, uh, <clears throat> because many listeners, I believe, will be very educated in dates, numbers, archaeological data, and this and that, I want to state that everything I say is what I know based on whatever I've read or heard in archaeological research. So, you know, a lot of times if I, if I say date or that archery is 20,000 years old, you know, don't really quote me on that because there might be people, you know, arguing till they blew in the face saying, no, it's only 12,000 years old or it's 60,000 years old. Right. So, you know, I, I just wanted to state that first because once we get in, into, into the point of view and history, then people can get kind of, you know, argumentative about it. So I would say what I believe, the oldest archaeological remains that have been discovered that are believed to be bow and arrow are something between nine to 13,000 year old. But the chance that you will find the oldest artifact, it's so slight that I believe that archery must have been around 20 to 25,000 years ago. I believe so. And it was such a huge invention that it spread out like a like a forest fire, like a wildfire, because all of a sudden, imagine how it changes society that is based on acquiring their food, their protection from other people, from wild animals. It's based on weapons that they make themselves. So before, <clears throat> before how the timeline kind of went, I think is that 
first were the Neanderthals, and they would have some kind of spears. But those spears, based on uh, latest research, were not throwing spears. They were thrusting spears. So you have to be very damn good hunter to get to the such a close proximity of the healthy wild animal that you're going to stab it with a spear. And also remember at the time, can... this, is, this is the Pleistocene. I mean, they're huge yes, animals. That, that, we're, we're talking mm, about megafauna. Exactly, you know, exactly. And, but even they will, they will be hunting smaller stuff, but it means how close you must be and how in tune you must be with your environment. But then, you know, not everybody can be successful in that, even at those times. So eventually on, on, on the scene comes a uh, throwing spear. Then after a little bit of a throwing spear, uh, being playing role or being an, an, on the scene of hunting, then you start seeing spear throwers. There are two main different types of spear throwers, one very primitive, one a little more advanced. After that, so it means, so first you have most likely for the hunt, you have one spear that you carry with you and you have to stab the animal you hunt. Then, fast forward thousands and thousands of years, you might have a spear thrower. The spear becomes lighter, but you're not going to carry more than three or five of them. Then all of a sudden, somebody comes up with the idea that you have this very light stick that is a strung with a string, and you might have a quiver with up to 60 arrows that will touch the animal or that will touch your target up to 40 yards away. That's, that, that's beyond, beyond understanding of a modern human how important that invention was. How incredible. I mean, people before, you know, got along just fine without, but it's like with any of the invention, once you unbottle the genie, once it's, once it's out, your paradigm shifts and you start seeing everything from certain perspective and all of a sudden, like with any big steps, like inventing the wheel, inventing the agriculture, the whole society shifts around that invention. All of a sudden you have more specified trades, you have more, you have more people that all of a sudden they don't have to spend for the hunt on average, I don't, I'll pick a number, you don't have to spend six hours a day, but maybe you spend just two hours a day. So it means you are fed, you're sitting around the fire, and then all of a sudden, instead of hunting the animal, you have a little more time to invent new things. You have more time to sit around, and that's how society moves forward. So, so what kind of, it's the, it's the deal that I think people nowadays, using internet and computers, cell phones, cars, always at least for the fun of it, should be able to see the link between all these most modern inventions all the way to, the, to our ancestors. This is one continuous line, and we are building, it's like stepping stones. We're building one on top of the other one. That's why I believe that the invention of bow and arrow was one of the biggest feats in the history of human, because then everything started changing. And there's a handful of these that happened. One of them is domestications of animals or domestications of horse and starting right in the horse, then invention of the wheel. But bow and arrow sits on top of this invention among all these main ones because it shaped it, it shaped human societies. Do you see bow making, I guess, as 
as a true useful tool still in a world with guns, where it's so easy to kill anything with the pull of, you know, a trigger? Or do you see what you're doing as kind of preserving this ancient skill almost in the way that, that you would in a museum? What I do in modern days, nowadays, it's, it's like art, which means it's absolutely useless in terms of if I really need to, you know, get something done, if I'm, if, you know, if, if you go, guns are so much more efficient than bow and arrow. So basically what I do will be almost like museum, museum piece. And whoever buys bows from me, whoever people are attracted to these bows, there's something deeper into that attraction. Because if they want to get the deed done, if they want to really shoot at something, you know, there, there's, there's faster, cheaper, easier, always. However, if somebody chooses and they go like, oh, I really want to shoot arrows, but I don't want compound, I don't want fiberglass laminate, I want boat that has a soul, I want boat that has a spirit in it. Then they will start seeking out little brother, and it's almost like a, it's almost like art. We're surrounding ourselves with art that's pretty, but doesn't have, you know, it, you, you, doesn't feed you. Yeah, it although I can imagine different. some people, like, mm -hmm. of your customers, people who are buying your bows, are there some people who are using them for hunting? Absolutely. Absolutely they are. But I, I think the way I understand the question, it's like uh, there's always other tools that you could use. I don't know if I'm getting at this from the, from the right kind of direction, but... Yes, my bow making will be almost like sort of survival of very ancient technique. But the only thing that's going to happen to humanity, if we're going to lose it, it's going to be very sad, but the humanity will move on, kind of, if you, if you get in my point of view, sort of. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so nothing will happen because that's time from the past. So it's almost like almost like somehow I would compare it to art. It's almost like once everything else is taken care of, then you have a little bit of feeling and time for art. And yet you feel so such it, a call to essential. preserve it. Yes, yes. I feel called to preserve it. And, you know, if I, I <clears throat> tell you even myself, sometimes I work late at night in my shop and I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm being like, dude, you know, I'm kind of like I'm 40 years old, carving these bows and arrows and you know out there there's like that fast fast modern life rushing by am i kind of like doing the right thing and stuff you know so sometimes i have doubts because it's it's kind of an art that's sort of forgotten that's like th th there's no real place for it unless you really go out of your way and you decide okay i want to pursue something i or i want to i, I want to see or use or feel something that's very beautiful it's out of our past yeah well that's and i think that's why people are listening to you right now because they as everything is disappearing so quickly we want to feel something again you know we want to feel that connection and i and i think what you're doing is so important because if you weren't doing it it will be lost yeah yeah thank you and that's you know those are those are things that kind of keep me going things when you know i have i have people admiring my work and just right now i had a couple gentlemen 
last week uh, b who heard about me and they ordered replica of Native American bows from this region. And, you know, that's, you know, that gets me so excited when somebody really values what I do and that kind of, you know, keeps me going. I love what I do, but like I said, it's, it's, it's a thing, it's a thing of past. Even though people admire it now, people use them for hunting, target shooting, just to hang on a wall. But, you know, it's, I, and I don't know if that's just me kind of sometimes being faced with the harsh reality of the modern competitive world, but it, it's almost like anachronism. You know, it's like, like the other, the, the other day I heard on radio this kind of a story of a guy who makes living writing operas. And I was like, what? Somebody goes see opera still? And there's somebody <laughs> making a living writing operas? I went to school for uh, opera, Victor. Yes, ex yeah. exactly. And, but but that's so, many, you know, so, so many people, but they do it kind of like when everything else is taken care of, they go like, honey, let's go see opera. That's, you know, and there's somebody who does operas. And, but, but it, it, you know, it's not like if you will be kind of following with a stream and follow, following as everybody else goes, then then I will probably have a job doing something like 90% people does. If you kind of follow me there, you know, sort of saying that that if anybody chooses to follow path of what they like instead of what will be easy, then it's always going to be kind of, there always going to be this kind of cruxes and, and thresholds to go over and these difficult kind of spots to go over because you're not doing something that's Monday to Friday. Yeah. Well, this kind of yeah. comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning where like the headspace that you have to be in to shoot a bow and arrow because I think everything we do now <clears throat> is so brainless and we don't access or it's so brainy that we don't access that space between you know that like ancient mm -hmm. intuitive emotional side that that this taps into and that listening yes. to ancient music not well offers not ancient but older music uh -huh. taps into and you know there's there's a call to that 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 i feel that absolutely you can't verbalize absolutely. and you're not supposed to verbalize because part of our human history wasn't verbal Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So th there is definitely connection. And that's uh, kind of uh, one of the things that keep me going is that no matter what I ever do or make while creating bow is that I doubt that I ever invent anything new. Even if it's, if, even if I come up with something I've never heard about or read about, something I've never seen, I'm positive it was done before because archery and bow and arrow it's so old that all of these ancestors before us, all of these you know people making bows before they all have done it. It's all been done, and it's kind of for me it's kind of peaceful, very grounded feeling because it makes me feel like I'm standing you know like on the on the shoulders of of the ancestors of these countless men who were building their bows under whatever circumstances i feel sort of connection there so that th those are those are moments that are that are so gratifying and satisfying for me yeah so before before <clears throat> we wrap this up victor i just want to know and i know everyone listening wants to know so tell us how some of the process of what goes into making these bows 
and the research, because I know that you are drawing on so much history when you're making these. Well, as far as research and speaking of inventions, nowadays, if you go on internet, there is there, there is so much information and so many people. I've seen so many people making so many beautiful, very traditional bows. But when I started, there, there, there was nothing, no internet. And sometimes kind of to get information on a, on a bow, I will have to go through some kind of boring old book. And then, you know, on page 182, there will be like two lines about, oh, and once the bows were strung and this and that, you know, so, so I would kind of immediately get that just little piece and little piece and little piece elsewhere. Or I will see something in museum or I will see old photograph or something, you know, I will be piecing it together. But then, you know, I, I got started buying books. There's amazing books. So for me, the information, it's many, many books that I had to read, a lot of trial and error, many broken bows. <laughs> and what I used to do, actually, broken bows. Well, when I used to make these first higher-end bows, Broken bows used to be mystery for me. And I would, it would be so frustrating, but what I would do, I would save that bow, all the pieces that flew from it, and I would just put it somewhere on the shelf. And then a few months later, I would look at a bow again, I would study it, and all, all of a sudden it would dawn on me, like, okay, I made this mistake, or this happened. I violated growth ring, or I cut through here, or I made that spot a little too narrow. So now I break very, very minimum, very small minimum of bows, and it's never a mystery for me. So that, on that point, I know I kind of made a, made a huge leap. And uh, so, so researching stuff and visiting museums. I visited so many museums, wherever I travel, I see museums, and in pretty much every museum there's something related to archery, either arm guard, little tab, or little arrowhead, or arrow, or bow, bowstring, and all of these you start collecting in your, in your mind, you start collecting all these bits and pieces, and slowly putting them into this well of knowledge that you kind of go from. Yeah. I'm going to start looking at all the bows and arrows at all the museums I take my kids to now. <laughs> I notice them anyway, but now I'm really going to notice them. Uh, and what about, what about the process of making your the, Oh, so, <clears throat> yeah. So the, so the process, for me, since I make very, primi very primitive, very traditional cell bows, I want to have control over the whole process. So I don't buy my staves, and stave is the name of that split log, that you make bow out of, that is a bow-making quality. So what I do, I start the whole journey by harvesting my own material, which means I have to kind of create my network of people or always getting to know people who have some kind of either property or they have family properties in the parts of country where the best bow-making trees grow. So, for example, a couple of months ago, I went to a family land of this friend of mine, the guy who I met at archery shoot, and um, they have 100 acres in Oklahoma. It's a family land, and they were such a nice people. They let me on, and I just kind of have time to go through all the, all the trees, all the woods, and I harvest my own material. So I have to uh, kind of look at the tree first to see how it grows and how its bark grows. 
if it's not twisted or if there is no any any hints or clue telling me on the bark that there might be something funky going on inside the tree. Then I cut down the tree and I have to look at the growth rings. After I determine those growth rings tell me something either about the environment or about that individual specific uh, single tree I just cut down. If the if the growth rings are what I'm looking for, then I split the log either into quarters or eighths. Then I coat the ends so they wouldn't crack. I load it up and bring it back to Colorado. After I let it dry and season for a little bit, I start making bows out of it. And that way I know that I, have, I was at the beginning of the process, that I chose the tree, I cut down the tree, I split the log, then I carve that uh, stave into one specific growth ring. Then I choose based on how the fiber and the grain looks and behaves. I choose that specific bow that will be perfect for that very stave. And I start carving. And of course, a lot of times and most of the times, whatever shape of bow I choose might end up a little different, but that's based on how the wood behaves or what's in that wood. How does it, how does it you know, follow the grain and stuff? So I cut that bow and then I start bending it and create it. And then a lot of times I measure the speed of the arrow. And then based on the efficiency of the bow, then I'm either, I, I kind of price it on how, how they shoot. And if the bow is very higher, very good shooter, and it looks, it's very solid and stout. If it's a bow I'm absolutely happy about, then I kind of, uh, spice it up a little bit with some mother of pearl inlay or elbow inlay or mammoth ivory inlay or some kind of some kind of artwork to sort of, sort of step it up a little bit. Sorry, did you so say mammoth basically. ivory? Yes, I just acquired this this little chunk of mammoth ivory. So it is it is uh, it is a uh, how you call it? It's not like a elephant ivory that is so bad nowadays that. You know, it, nobody should be using that, but this is ivory that has been 12,000 years old and has been found by, by uh, some native hunters up in Alaska. Oh, and sometimes wow. they sell it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually sometimes they sell it with some of the artifacts and stuff, and you can acquire little bits and pieces of it. You can buy a whole thing, but what I do, I acquire little bits and pieces, and I can, you know, cut them and polish and use them for, uh, for inlays. Wow. And so, and what are you using for the, is it called the string, the bowstring? Yeah, the bow, the bowstring. So nowadays, <clears throat> or I've been using all natural materials, even for, uh, for, that's for the sake of purity. And it was with my overall journey of how to make my bows, every part of, of the tag, for at least for me, has to be all natural. So I've been using organic unbleached linen. However, Nowadays, it's very difficult to find high-quality linen to make bowstrings out of, and that is because back in the day when people were actually, even in medieval times, when bow-making was kind of a still ongoing business, then there would be people growing flags or linen specifically for, for bowstrings. So it will be tallest linen possibly they can grow, then they would process it and they will ship it most likely to Ireland. In Ireland they will spun it into twine and then they will be making bowstrings out of that twine. 
So nowadays, if you buy comer commercially pr produced uh, linen, even if it's a even if it's organic or small production linen, then a lot of times how it how linen is divided now, it's it is either tow linen or line linen. Those are two old you know kind of definition. And line linen means that the that the twine or the string is made out of whole or the longest possible fibers of the plant. And then whatever you have left over as a scraps, you will make kind of second quality string that is called linen. But nowadays, if anybody's acquiring, acquiring a linen string, uh, you know, nowadays kind of both strings depend on it. So nobody really cares if the whole string is made out of tow or line linen. So nowadays it's extremely difficult to find a very quality quality linen and I had unfortunately a couple of failures that were fatal to the bows to the, on these custom orders. So I'm kind of, you know, stepping away from that and that's not because the natural materials will fail me, but it is because uh there's I don't think or at least I haven't found linen grower that will be uh, uh, supplying the bowstring market. Let's so if you are way. listening and you are looking to get into an archaic <laughs> form of agriculture to supply Victor's bows, get in touch with Victor. No. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So what are you using instead? So instead, I haven't used it yet, but I just bought regular, regular bow making material and it's made, I don't know, some kind of petroleum product. But it's, you know, like nowadays, if you want to go factory made artificial stuff, there is some amazing stuff. But for me, for me, that's that's the only compromise I I am willing to make. And on some of these bows, especially on a heavier draw, I am making a uh, you know like, or I'll be making these artificial strings out of either I don't know the technical names, the fast fly or the seventy. Okay, but these are these are man-made materials. These are man-made materials, but you know it's just one of the one of the part of it and especially for myself I do, I wouldn't shoot it and I shoot I shoot my linen strings and they last about 1000 shots on heavy bow on heavy bow which is nothing compared to these modern strings they last thousands and thousands and thousands of shots but then and then they, they can be replaced though right oh yeah very easily and especially for me I can make beautiful bow string in 20 minutes or so so I just supply myself with with, with with a string, so I don't, so I don't kind of pollute my personal archery tackle with yeah. artificial string. <laughs> well, Victor, your work is so beautiful, and everything is just. I love your website. We're going to post links to everything, but I know a lot of people listening probably want to either order a bow or get in touch with you, maybe even about lessons. So tell us everything. Where can people follow you? Where can people look at your work, and how can people get <clears throat> in touch? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, so. I do have a website. It's a uh, uh, you know vikies.org, and I do have a Instagram page, v i k i e s, vikies bows and arrows. But I you know this technology, I'm so bad at posting, so uh, so uh, I don't post as often as I should. But I promise to get better. Or if anybody's listening and wanna help me with that, then I'll be happy to <laughs> happy to hire somebody. However, you know, I have, I have both on sale and uh, uh, the very amazing archery place, that's everything archery, 
Uh, it's in Denver, Rocky Mountain Specialty Gears. They do sell my bows. And uh, if people go on my website, every now and then, if I have bow that I just finished, I will put uh, up there for sale. So I don't have a categories. Let's say I make this type of bows and this type of bows because every piece of wood is so individual. So whatever bow I just uh, finished, based on how it is, I will price it accordingly. And then it goes up on my website. People can also order custom orders and uh, everything through informations on my website. Wonderful. And for those listeners who live in the Boulder area, you offer classes as well, right? Yes. And I also offer bow making classes for kids and for adults. And those are quite popular. And I do have uh, advanced bow making classes. Those are that if you come over, we'll make a bow out of Osage Orange. And that includes uh, uh, the craft or art of its own, which is following the growth ring on a specific piece of wood. And then we're going to make the bow. Or there's kind of simpler one, which the bows are made out of different type of wood, where you can start carving the bow right underneath the bark. And then I have uh, kids bow making classes. And with all of these classes, I what I do with people, I kind of, I guarantee that everybody lives with beautiful functioning bow. And a lot of times, you know, and there's, there's different type of people. So sometimes I have somebody who wants to do everything themselves under my supervision. And a lot of times it, if there's some kind of difficult spot, I very politely ask if I can step in and then I do that sort of going over the difficult spot or something that the person is not very sure at and that will make sure that we collaborate and everybody leaves with with beautiful beautiful bow. wonderful i hope i get to visit you when i finally make my way out to boulder mm -hmm. oh and uh, i would like to add also that uh things that very get me excited and makes me very stubbornly follow on the path of making the bows so special and specific as I make them, very traditional, is that, for example, a few years ago, I met this uh, very well-known guy. Uh, he writes books, and he's, he has a quite following, and he, he's an absolutely amazing person. And he fell in love with my bow, so he ordered a bow from me or asked me if I can make him bow and set of arrows. So first, I kind of to maybe have a little more idea who he might be. I read his book, kind of get the idea who he might be. So based on reading that book, I was like, okay, maybe now I know what kind of bow he might like. And I made him beautiful, beautiful bow, very traditional arrows from the from the U.S. native river cane with a uh, wild turkey and wild Canada goose fletching. And as I gave it to him, he was so amazed and so pleased that he gave me horse in, in, in trade. What? So I was, yes, he gave, he gave me this beautiful, amazing racehorse. And I, I was just blown away. And those are moments that I know that if you follow your heart and if you passionately stay on your path, that you will be rewarded. So wonderful, Victor. We're going to leave it right there. It's been such yes. a joy talking to you today. Thank you. Very nice talking to you as well. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.